Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the bleeding disorders community brought to you by the Rare Disease Content Network, Bloodstream Media, and made possible by Takeda, bleedingdisorders.com to learn more. Today, we are joined by rare disease patient advocate and podcaster, Avantika Srivastava, to talk about living with and advocating for people with rare diseases in India. Diversity in body is not something that one should be ashamed of. And yes, there are challenges, and the challenges are something that are also constructed socially, which means they are they abound in society. I mean, the barriers that societies place are much more than what the rare individual will go through just because of the rare disease. Hi all, I am your patient, advocate, and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any healthcare decisions. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to and share the Bloodstream podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. You'll find us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening right now. And you can also now stream full episodes directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page. Because that's probably what you need. Another reason to spend time on Facebook. And as it's June and summer's upon us, you know, you could maybe be sitting outside while streaming the episodes from Facebook. Maybe even while staring into a pond or at a flight of swallows or while cleaning out that thing you've been avoiding cleaning out, which can be productive and it feels good to do it. Wow, this sounds like a personal experience. This is a personal experience. I went through my closet last week. And actually, Amy, I have to tell you, I discovered in going through my closet for delayed spring cleaning, mm-hmm. the amount of clothing that I have not put on in a year and a half. Not as a, not joking, like legitimately clothes I haven't worn. 90% of them don't fit. <laughs> like... I have things to now do, and I'm like, I have to go shop. Like, I, suddenly, I have an urgent need to shop. Like, I, I, I came from nowhere because I didn't realize nothing fits me anymore. So it's a great news for those who will be receiving donations of clothes. Uh, congratulations. I have uh, a lot to offer, just not a lot to wear. Oh, my gosh. I feel the exact same way. I wore, like, one pair of pants this entire time. I should say one pair. Like, I wore a pair of jeans, like, out, and then I wore sweatpants all the time. And it's hard to, like, detach from the sweatpants situation. I believe in sweatpants. I, I do, and I did that. This is a very me thing to do. I have like two pairs of sweatpants that I function with, one of which I only got like at the beginning of the pandemic and immediately had a rip, but I was like, that's fine. We can wear this almost daily. I only maybe three weeks ago got like four new pairs of sweatpants. So that's how I've timed it up. I didn't, I, I stuck with the two one damage for the entirety of the pandemic. Then with about four weeks to go before the summer, I was like, you know what? Let's let's forex the amount of sweatpants I bring in. Did nothing for the other clothes until a panic on Sunday. But alas, Amy, I know that's not what we're here to talk about. So let me ask you my favorite question of every episode. How are you? I'm well. I'm actually doing really well. Today, I have a very wonderful task that I get to read all of the Adam Lynch scholarship recipient applications. And we've sent them off to our committee. So I'll be getting the feedback in, but I get to read them and they're so inspiring. Anyway, so it's just, it's a good day. It's a good day. Nice. Yeah. I mean, how many, are you swamped? How many do we have? Is it, do we have four? Do we have 72,000? We have 14, which in the bleeding disorder space, that's, that's a great number. It's a great number. And they're very, they're very diverse and they're wonderful. So it's been, it's been fun. It's been a good morning. Well, cool. Thank you for taking the lead on that. Um, I, so here you go, listeners. I have nothing to do with that. If you think hanging out with me helps your chances at the Adam Lynch scholarship, you're hanging out with the wrong person. You got to hang out with Amy. (laughs) I find out when you find out. 
which is That's how it's intended. That's not true. You get final I, I say. Will say. Oh my goodness! Oh, don't tell them that. No, I oh, do God. get final perusal, but I try not to interfere. I think it's appropriate for the the committee yeah. and the process to do yeah. its thing. I'm just there to guardrail. But I did notice too. On I was on an NHF's website this morning, and we're recording this on Tuesday the eighth. And while the Adam Lynch Scholarship application window has closed, there are still a number of scholarship application windows that are open, but many of which that are open close this month. So it seems mm. as though May, June, trickling perhaps into July, and I didn't look at all of them, but just a quick scan. I was like, oh, let me just shout out, like if you or someone in your household is going to be looking for scholarships to college in the not too distant future, even if it's for next year or frankly, even two years from now, just get a lay of the land and start putting some dates and calendars like, oh, okay. The Adam Lynch Scholarship is due around June this. Uh, the Mary Gooley Scholarship is due around this date. There's a lot. There's so many resources. I know it's something that, frankly, I could not have gone to the school I went to had it not been for scholarships that I was able to get through this community. So do take advantage of those resources. They are quite worthwhile. Amy, did you have to go through like all sorts of scholarship grant funds? Like, Do you remember all that madness from when we were applying oh. to college 400 years ago? Yes. And I don't think much has changed because my mother drove the most of it. She was, you know, pushing me to do these things and applying and it was a lot. And I was not a kid that did that well. So I didn't, I didn't do well at those scholarship things. I, you know, it's so funny now with like my job and things, but I, I was a mess. I, I was a very average student, very classic, creative kid. Like I did not apply myself that way. <laughs> Well, speaking of creative, you mentioned writing more this year. I don't remember when on the podcast. It feels like forever ago now. But we haven't checked in either, frankly, on or off mic about this. So how's that going? How's your writing going? Are you writing? Are you going to classes? What's going on? I'm writing every morning. It's it's. I have found it. I found Golden Hour. I'm writing my first novel and the story is has turned over many 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 times so there's been a lot of stop start which has been um terrifying in some ways it's been very defeating in some ways because you feel like you've failed sure. but uh it's 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 a part of the process and i've i am pleased that i was able to discover you know you get like 10,000 15,000 words in and realize like oh no 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 this is not this is not it this is either not the relationship i wanted to write or like story you wanted to write so you just you kind of abandon right. move on so it's it's been it's been a lot but it's it's been the most wonderful creative process i mean i i, I intend to continue going continue you know attempting to get published you know it'll be like years down the road but it's just been this fantastic creative process i've loved it every morning <laughs> worked on Good it. Good for you. That's incredible. Has there been one practice or habit or thing that you have learned since starting this that might be worth mentioning to people? I think um, the, the biggest thing is forming the habit. For, for me, getting up early and doing it before anything you know, starts of the day is, is absolutely key. It's your most important part. So if you get your writing done, if you get your ideating done, if you get your daydreaming done, even if it's just notes, even if you just tweak a little bit of the synopsis or something, having that done during the day and then starting is wonderful. And it's also been interesting. I, I suffer mm -hmm. from um, pretty consistent and very reliable anxiety. Like it's, it's a consistent thing, but it's been like a, um, <laughs> an indicator anxiety. for me. <laughs> I know. And I've, I've experienced it, but it, my anxiety with, with the book and the story in particular has been a huge indicator that 
I know something is coming, something doesn't feel right or something needs to be deepened and it won't leave me for a while, but there's always something really good. I always discover something Mm. on the back end of that anxiety. Like it always, it's, it's provoking like, oh my gosh, I don't know. And that's what's so terrifying is like, oh my gosh, I, I know I have this problem and I don't know how to fix it. And it, it derailed me a little bit in the beginning and now it's a little bit more of an indicator of like follow this through, follow this through because, you know, a nugget will be on the back end. So it's been, it's been terrific. That's and so true. It's kind of fun to think like maybe someday when I'm old, I'll be able to like, you know, retire and, and literally do this full time. How fun would that be? But I've never had that before. I've never had something like a, a, a vision in the future to to you know so anyway it's been great thanks for asking pal is your first anchor point way out into the future for yourself is uh, retired just writing on a porch somewhere listening to birds hanging out with squirrels on picnic benches that's that's the dream literally patrick that's the dream like we both rob and i both went to like uh, <laughs> buy a piece of land somewhere and like you know build a house and be there and he wants to do chores for a living and i'd write I think Natalie and I played that game once and a little while into it, we were like, so where on the land is Rob going to live? Because we realized that our vision included like Rob also has to live nearby because he does chores for a living. And uh, I don't do them for a living or for function or it's just bad. We didn't Um, know you guys were a part of the equation, but now that we do, like, we'll make sure to coordinate. Yeah, absolutely. This is um, only partially a joke. So a couple (laughs) announcements and then we'll get into this interview with Avantika, who's uh, one of my new favorite people. And um, I'm excited to talk with you, Amy, about that interview. So just a few quick announcements. Thanks to everybody who checked out last month's Bloodstream Live, our first live of 2021. The first time Amy and I got to record in the same room together, which we are now not doing once again. So it was a real special moment in time. But we'll be back in the same room again together next week for our next live. So uh, our summer schedule, a little different than the rest of the year. Our next episode of Bloodstream is going to be coming out next Friday on the 18th, but it will be a live, which means it'll go up first as a live Wednesday, the 16th, 7 p.m., same start time, Eastern Standard as the last one. So that's live Wednesday, June 16th. And we'll be featuring an interview that I did with Sean Bombstark and Kyle Bryant, the hosts and creators of the Two Disabled Dudes podcast. They just wrapped up their most recent season of the show. They are um, wonderful advocates. They are very active in the rare disease advocacy world. If you've participated in some events over the years, you perhaps have seen them. I think they're, they're, they're well-known. First time I've gotten to chat with them, first time we've had them on Bloodstream, and that will be part, Amy, of our live next week. Yay! They are great. Cheat Codes episode number 35 has doctors Marzadian Mike Callahan in conversation with treaters from the Indiana HTC. So if you want to hear some of the clinicians from the Indiana HTC chat with doctors Mike and Amar over on Cheat Codes episode number 35 is the place for you to go. And shout out to Global Blood Therapeutics for their support on that one. Effie, Once Upon a Gene, we introduced that in the live last month. Now as a part of Bloodstream Media, well, Effie had on her June 3rd episode a genomics expert, a genome scientist. Amy, yet another profession that my high school guidance counselor never even bothered to mention. Genomics <laughs> scientist could maybe have been great at that. Who knows? But alas, that is over on Once Upon a Gene. And okay, lastly, maybe I can get a drum roll for this one. I don't know. Or I can go. Brrr. 
Pain Podcast is coming back. Uh, it is season three of Bloodstream Media's show that is dedicated to chronic pain and the experience of living with chronic pain returns this fall for a season that's focused on how pain is experienced and handled differently by various micro societies and cultures from throughout the U.S. This is something we sort of dipped our toe into in the first two seasons, re- realizing how many different states and cities and areas and cultures and just pockets of society have a different relationship to what it means to be in pain and to manage that pain. So that's what we want to focus on in season three. And a big shout out to our sponsor, Tremo Pharmaceuticals, for continuing to support that program and our mission on the Pain Podcast. So you can check out the Pain Podcast via Bloodstream Media. You can check out Tremo at TremoRx.com. And for more on Believe Limited's Big Bloody Talent Show, to sign up for our first ever newsletter, or to find links to any one of our many, many programs and initiatives, click the bit.ly slash all bloodstream stuff link in the program notes. One more time, that's bit.ly slash all bloodstream stuff. And as always, if you got a topic you'd like to hear Amy and I discuss, you have an expert you're dying to hear from, or you want to inquire about casting opportunities with Bloodstream Media and Believe Limited, email us, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com, or connect with Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or send Amy a direct message on LinkedIn. Make sure it's long, include a lot of details, and follow up daily if you haven't heard. Always with the LinkedIn. Here's the thing. If you send me a LinkedIn message, I will get it three weeks later. I don't get email notifications when you message me. I check it when like Patrick texts me and says, hey, have you seen some this thing on LinkedIn? That's, but he, he does text me at least every three weeks. So just warning everyone. I'm going to do it more too, because I yeah, literally, she's saying three weeks, like it's like a random number. But yesterday she's like, hey, I got this, uh, you know, professional message that is work related <laughs> uh, three weeks ago on LinkedIn, didn't respond. It was like, okay, cool. So maybe get involved in that platform. So those are just some of the lovely conversations we're having over here on mm-hmm. Bloodstream Media Off Mic. Let's talk about this interview because this sounds like hypey, bs stuff. But honestly, I think this is one of the stronger... Uh, 18-minute uh, interviews that we've had on the podcast in, in quite a while. Uh, that's mainly to do with the interviewer not always being the best interviewer, saying nothing of our guests. But as a guest, Avantika is pretty special. Tell me everything. What are we about to hear? What were your thoughts? Without stepping on what's about to come. So Avantika, who, by the way, I'm saying her name probably very wrong. In fact, she told me that uh, if anything, I say it like a Russian. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. I don't, yeah, that makes sense to me. This morning as I was practicing it, I was like, oh, I hear it now. I hear it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Russian to an Indian person as I'm trying to say her name. But anyway, she is, she is sharp. She is thoughtful. She's clearly very driven. And she's got an interesting background given the work she's doing now. She lives with a rare disease, which she'll tell you about. And she's become a powerful advocate for herself and for fellow rare disease patients in India since she was diagnosed. How did you connect with her? I was just clicking around the web, searching for rare disease podcasts and checking out lists of notable rare disease podcasts like I do. And uh, and I stumbled upon this show, One in 20,000 from Suno, India. And I was struck by it as the only rare disease podcast that I could find that was out of India. And it's predominantly in English. So I got curious about the show, its creator, the host. I thought she did a really nice job in what I listened to. So I just reached out to say, you know, see if she'd speak with me for Bloodstream. And voila, this conversation is the result. This is very cool. I'm so excited to give it a listen. So we'll run the interview, which is a bit over 15 minutes. And then Amy and I will be back 
to chat and react. Chat and react. That's a good podcast name. You know, it's the title for the first season of my new show, No Information, Big Opinions. <laughs> that is, that's perfect. <laughs> that should be your LinkedIn bio. <laughs> All right, I'll go change that right now. You enjoy the interview and I'm going to go update my profile. We'll be back in just a little bit. The podcast series 1 in 20,000 has just recently completed their second season titled Rare Lives. Rare Lives and the 1 in 20,000 podcast are made possible by Suno India, and the show is hosted by rare disease patient advocate Avantika Srivastava, who joins me now from across the globe, 12 hours ahead, 8.30 at night, putting in the late hours. I very much so appreciate it. Thank you for joining Bloodstream. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast episode, Patrick. How badly did I butcher your name just there? Well, <laughs> to be honest, I, I would have expected that. That is not the correct pronunciation. For your listeners, my name is Avantika Shuvasta, and I am currently, yes, in New Delhi, India. So how is rare disease defined in India? Is it defined as one in 20,000? I was curious about that number. Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe its prevalence as well? That is a question that I guess everybody who, who is part of the rare disease space in India asks. And we've not really come up with a comprehensive or accurate answer. And the reason for that is India does not have a definition. India right mm. now does not even have a handle of how many people there are who have rare diseases. But we go by the definition that almost every country in this world goes by, that mm -hmm. a rare disease is if very few people in a population are documented to have that disease. I, I can go in detail on how many rare diseases are reported in India. Yeah, that would be actually really interesting if you could provide us a little bit of a, a bird's eye view of what is the state of rare disease care in India. I would say that it is very different from, from America, and there are many reasons for that. One reason, and the most obvious reason, is that, yes, we are a developing country, but we are also a country with diversity in language, diversity in lifestyle. It's, it's, it's a huge country. So mm -hmm. there is bound to be diversity in care for rare individuals as well. Not many people know about rare diseases in the country. Even if when I come to my own experience, I did not know about rare diseases before I was diagnosed with a rare disease. And you were diagnosed effects. at 18, I think I read? Yes, I was diagnosed in my teenage years. That, that is correct. I was fresh out of school, high school, and, and I was just entering college. And mm. unfortunately, nobody mm. in my family, none of us knew what this was. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went with best doctors in India. Right. And by best doctors, I'll qualify that. It's not like India does not have good doctors. It's just that the doctors that we ended up going to did not know mm. about rare diseases. So that, again, is I something see. that is fairly common in India where... Doctors, medical practitioners don't know about rare diseases themselves. If, if you just look at my story, I was first misdiagnosed. Then afterwards, when my symptoms persisted, we went to another, we took a second opinion. So we went to another doctor. That's when I was diagnosed correctly. And as soon as I walked in, <laughs> still remember the day, 
but as as soon as i walked into the neurologist's office he told me that uh-huh. you're a textbook you're a classic textbook case of fshd that is a variant of muscular dystrophy and what fshd okay. does is it weakens the skeletal muscles so 1 in 20000 comes from a statistic that i found online that 1 in 20000 people can be affected by fshd but as is with statistics india does not have handle on uh, how many people have rare diseases or how many people have fshd or muscular dystrophy so that's the story i imagine that's got to be so frustrating at times it is but you well how should i put it um you learn to live with it also because medical care is still accessible for people like me medical care is still accessible so unlike mm. and i also lived lived in the united kingdom and i know about the national health services i i know that it it just feels like the system cares for you whereas in india mm. it just it just feels like you know you need to figure out everything on your own but the flip mm. side is the fact that if you have the privilege you can also get access to the right doctors and well qualified mm. doctors which in more advanced countries that's not the case because you have to you have long waiting lines etc in the united states there's a number of laws and policies like the americans with disabilities act individuals with disability education act the affordable care act and none of these are perfect i don't think anybody would say these are 100% perfect but they do provide a certain baseline of protections for people with rare diseases is there anything like that from a federal level and i appreciate that india is made up of different states and territories not unlike the us in that way and i'm sure there's variants across those but is there anything from a country perspective that is in place that helps provide some baseline of support for people with rare diseases that again <laughs> so a bit about my personal background i have been a journalist I have been in the non-profit sector. I worked with international NGOs. I worked on public health issues. Currently, I'm with the think tank, so I work on policy issues. Yeah, so my answer is going to be a bit more nuanced. It's not going to be be a blanket yes or no. Yes, I love India, a good nuanced answer. Go right ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's validation enough. That's a great signal for me. I I I break this down for you. In India, health is a state subject, which means that the the union government doesn't re- really have a lot of control over issues related to public health. However, the union government is the overarching federal authority, and they are responsible for making sure that the welfare standards in each state are at least a minimum threshold so policies that come from the union level are really important they are also mm. a signaling factor to the states that this policy issue mm. is of prime importance now given how muted the conversation on rare diseases is in india 
rare diseases mm. weren't on the public or policy agenda for the longest time. Uh, as I already mentioned, India does not have a handle on the number of people with rare diseases. And out of the 8,000 rare diseases documented in the world, India only reports 450, which wow. I feel, yeah, yeah, exactly. The first time I, I heard this, I was like, no way. We have one. Yeah, that's. We, we have a, poof. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have a population of 1.3 billion. It is right. not possible that only 450 rare diseases are documented. They are documented, but only 450 rare diseases exist within the population pool. So therein lies your answer that, that perhaps policy-wise not a lot has been done. Not enough, if you ask me. A couple of years ago, India did come out with the draft rare disease treatment policy. And I won't go in the, into the detail, but literally this was a national level policy and this was supposed to be the policy for rare individuals such as, like, such as me. And this was after a lot of work by rare disease advocates, by, by NGOs working with rare individuals in India. And the policy was kept in abeyance after a point in time, which literally means that the government said that, well, yeah, we put out a draft policy, but we, you know what, it really does not work. So we will come out with the new improved version of the policy later on. And it took another two years for them to come out with a policy. And that policy was notified, which if I'm not mistaken, which literally means that now it's sort of law. Okay. And which is, is, is a policy w which actually uh, exclusively deals with rare individuals and, and, and the entitlements of rare individuals. However, my personal opinion is that that's a weak policy, given how India is structured mm. and given the challenges within the country. Do you foresee this policy as being the first and maybe a few or several throughout the country and throughout the individual states that help people with rare disease or do you view this more as it's great that we have gotten this this far but it's insufficient and now it may not give us the chance to push any further how do you view where you are right now on that policy i feel it's insufficient and i feel that it mm. to put it harshly it is mere tokenism which would literally mean we'll be right back with more from avantika right after this quick message Listeners, I would like to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, I co-sign that, and are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say... Thanks, Takeda. All right, let's get back to the interview. How do you view where you are right now on that policy front? I feel it's insufficient. And I feel that, it, mm. to put it harshly, 
it is mere tokenism which would literally mean that mm. they had to do something so they did but Got these it. are my okay. this is my personal view and maybe there are rare disease advocates who would say that no i mean they at least they've done this Sure, sure, sure. And no, and I appreciate I appreciate that this is your view and not necessarily the ubiquitously held view. But I have to ask, what keeps you motivated day to day? Because it sounds like there's a lot of challenges on top of the fact that you are living with a rare disease, which inherently puts challenges in front of someone's life. So w what do you do to keep motivated, to keep driving forward, to keep fighting some of these uphill battles that you fight? Yes. Uh, <laughs> interesting question. And I don't think I've perfectly... Like, I, 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 I don't think I have a complete and perfect answer for this. Let me put it this way, that I have seen life on the other side. I was able-bodied till I wasn't. To me, that was sufficient enough and that propels me even, even today, presently, to do what I do. And I'm fortunate enough to be at the right place Given, given my education, given the kind of opportuni opportunities that I have, and I want to make use of those opportunities because otherwise I, I feel it, it's just going to go waste. And that's, so the podcast actually, the, the, the podcast that you mentioned in the beginning came, came out yeah. of a, a conversation between me and the editor of Suno India. She's a dear friend and she's a former colleague. So we, we used to work together and one day we were just discussing, we, as we usually do, we, we discuss about a lot of things under the sun, but we discussed this. Mm. And she knew that, <laughs> she knew that I really wanted to do something and, I, I, and, and she offered me the chance to take this up as a podcaster. And the podcast medium wasn't something that I was privy to or... I would say it was it was it was a learning curve for me as well. But I'm glad I did that because this came out to be India's first podcast on rare diseases and the kind of feedback that I got given the fact that it is almost exclusively in English which is not widely spoken in India but mm. still we were able to get a listenership across the two seasons and we were able to put put on the table a lot of issues that are swept under the carpet in the garb of oh you're a rare individual you must be disabled or oh you're mm. a rare individual some something's wrong with you like why like something's wrong with your body you're not the norm what we were able to do is we we were able to flip it we were able to flip the narrative and say that diverse bodies matter Diversity in body is not something that one should be ashamed of. And yes, there are challenges. And the challenges is something that are also constructed socially, which means they, are, they abound in society. I and mean, the barriers that societies place are much more than what the rare individual will go through just because of the rare disease. And right. so basically what I'm trying to say in simple words is these seemingly inconsequential societal notions about normality, a normal body, an able body, it ends up actually being a disadvantage for a person who is going through a rare, who's, who's living a rare disease life rather than being something constructive. So that's what we did.
And yeah, the second season is done and over with now. And what is something that you've learned since starting it, either through the first season, the second season, all of it thus far? Is there anything in particular that you learned or discovered and didn't expect? I think for me personally, I learned that I wasn't the only one. That was a big Mm. learning. And I'll tell you why. Because even as we are a large country, you don't end up meeting a rare individual. We don't have a registry of rare individuals. And most people hardly know about NGOs that work on rare disease issues. And I was one of them till like four years ago. Yeah, four to five years ago. And that's five years ago was the first time I had met a rare individual who, who did not have the dystrophy that I do, but who had another variant. And from there on, leading up to the podcast, I think for me, every time I meet a rare individual, it's a sense of camaraderie that... Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, the very typical notion about rare individuals, as I mentioned earlier, is the fact that, oh, you're, you're suffering, oh, it's so bad, oh, it's so challenging for you. But this is our life. I don't think we are lesser than anybody just because of, of a set of circumstances. And that, that actually came through in the podcast as well. And... You know, every time I'm told that I'm very emotionally resilient, and Mm. here I would also qualify the fact that it does come from my parents. So (laughs) maybe maybe they're partial, but they are also able-bodied. And everybody around me is almost, almost everybody around me are people who are able-bodied. They don't go through the set of circumstances that I go through or somebody else who has a rare disease go through. And so after speaking to these people for the podcast, I I figured why why my parents or why my friends say that I'm, I'm emotionally resilient because a life such as this teaches you a lot. As I said, I'm not the only one. So so that's that that was a great learning for me. Yeah. You can listen to Avantika on her podcast, One in 20,000, from Suno, India. The second season, titled Rare Lives, is available to listen to in full on Apple Pods, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or you can simply follow the link in the program notes. Amy, there is so much in what was just shared, and I know we only have so much time here, so I don't want to get sloppy or overly indulgent or try to talk about everything, but what stood out to you most from that interview? You know, I, I think um, how rare to have insight like that. I think I was most drawn to, I guess this is from my chair, I was most drawn to the policy conversation that was fascinating. And her her statement mm-hmm. that she's lived in the United Kingdom for a bit. And so she knows what it feels like to have the system take care of you. And I, I get I've. I know this is like my reaction, but I guess I'd like to throw it back to you as, you know, someone with a rare disease. Do you feel like the system takes care of you here in the States? Um, yes, I feel like the system takes care of me here in the United States. And I think I participate pretty actively 
in helping ensure that. But I don't think that the system necessarily takes care of people with rare diseases in the United States, period, full stop. I do think by comparison, you know, when she mentions there's only 450 of the 8,000 rare diseases that India recognizes, that until recently, there was really no policy, as I mentioned to her, you know, at least in the US, we have some federal protections, there's some stuff to give us a baseline. It really seems as though India is without that. But at the same time, something she said, and I don't know how well this may or may not have come across in the edit, but she did mention how because of her position in India, and she didn't get into you know where exactly in like the social class in, the, in India she ex- exists, but she suggested she has access to care and treatment that others don't. And because of the way India is set up, she's actually able to get to see some of the best doctors available, whereas if she was in the UK with their system, you don't necessarily – get to choose that level of, and I am way out of my league speaking about, you know, the UK's health system, but I know this from family in England and in Ireland, there's, it's not always as smooth and easy to see who you want to see when you want to see them. So there's a, there's a cost benefit to social systems that are set up to support people. So yes, do I feel taken care of Patrick? Generally, yes, and I participate in that, but, um, I, I hear where your question's coming from and it's, uh, it's certainly I, I'm I'm happy to be living here with a rare disease, especially in 2021. But there's definitely a long way to go. I agree, and I I, I thought it was uh, fascinating that she mentioned her own you know privilege, being able to navigate and access the people that she needs to see, having the ability to do that. I feel a little ignorant about what it's like in Ireland or England or France, um, in their systems per se. That you know are are there certain pockets of the population that do have that privilege that are able to um, get access to options and treatment and treaters, you know, providers that might give a second opinion or a different opinion opinion or something more controversial than what their system would allow in terms of treatment. I just thought that was interesting and really, you know, highlights a lot of the conversations that we're having here in the U.S. Having on someone from the U.S., someone in India, maybe it's her, somebody from the U.K., somebody from like to choose five different health systems and maybe to come up. We're doing our show prep on Mike now, but for us to maybe come up with like a list of questions for if not bleeding disorders, then rare disease experts in these different healthcare systems and to just have a standard list of questions about like how that system does or does not support a person living with a rare disease. That'd be really interesting. I agree. Um, You know, Amy, one thing that really came out for me in that, which I thought was, um, I I mean, I guess it's a lot to do with what she learned in season two, this idea of diverse bodies matter. When she was talking about body normalcy, and how conversation around body normalcy, even when well-intended, can have unintended negative consequence to people with rare diseases. Emphasis on like what is normal and defining normal. And it just made me think about intent versus impact and mm-hmm. how in so many walks of life, um, the intent that we can have when behaving does not always directly correlate to the impact that we make on other people. And uh, I think this is a very good example of a way that it's it's not a bad thing to strive to, I don't know, define, I don't know if define normalcy is what I'm trying to say, but I, I guess just with the amount of conversation around body abnormalities and body normalcy, 
I I do appreciate how that only makes it more difficult for somebody who's living in a quote, diverse body to feel as though they have a place. I, I do appreciate that very much. Yeah, I was moved by that too. And just that larger conversation of, of what is normal and just the very human condition that we all don't feel normal in our skin for in some in some mm-hmm. regard. And to, to struggle with that is, is truly a part of it. Last point from the interview that I want to touch on before we wrap here. Uh, she said this just at the very end. And when she said it, I was sort of taken aback. A life such as this teaches you a lot. And I remember as a young kid when I was going to camps for kids that had different life-threatening or chronic illnesses and getting to meet these kids ages 6 to 16 and then meeting their siblings and their parents or family on pick-up and drop-off days and doing that over a period of a dozen years of being a camper. I, I, I came to appreciate that, wow, these are lives that are lived differently than those that I see most of the rest of the year. And there's a lot of love and there's a lot of strength and there's a lot of insight and there's a lot of camaraderie. And there just seemed like there was so much of it that was valuable. There was so much of what was going on at that place that was valuable. And yet outside of that camp, I never heard about medical challenges or rare diseases in 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 that context as something that could really benefit someone. And of course, you know, I don't, I don't believe in the thing like I'm, you know, I'm better with hemophilia than with that. Like that's, we make the most of what we have to. I didn't choose this. I doubt doubt anyone would, but there is so much one can learn from even the most challenging of circumstances if the mindset is there. And that's what I heard her saying in that quote. And it's something that I I guess in a way, Amy, I've kind of been trying to bring that a little bit more into my life since she and I talked because it, it really, really did resonate. Hmm. Another quote that she said in this interview that like highlights this as well. Um, you learn to live with it because that's your life. Yeah. That that acceptance component of it and, and how to bring that in when, because what I've observed in the hemophilia community, especially in the rare disease community, my, my mother goes through this as well. There's like highs and lows. So it's not always this heightened very difficult time. Sometimes there's real nice valleys where you, just, you feel comfortable and you're, you coast. And then all of a sudden something happens. And a lot of times that's how life is. But especially when you are managing a rare disease that will never go away, there's just almost this acceptance of how do mm-hmm. I function in that low period of frustration, the unknown, the, the, the extreme pain or suffering no, because you, you're physically feeling the symptoms or have some discomfort. And how do you work within your soul to not let that curdle you inside? And I think those with rare disease have to learn that much earlier. And also, how, how do you not um, betray your soul in that way? And at the same time, how, how do you live? I mean, well, let me speak for myself. I can struggle with being simultaneously kind of in touch with maybe where my where my struggle is, if I have a struggle, like where that is, to be both in touch with that and to be quote unquote presenting a good face sometimes feels at odds with each other. I feel like I'm not allowing my truth to be present, that I'm somehow short shrifting myself. And that's, and you know, it's armchair psychology here. That gets into a whole bunch of stuff that I deal with around making myself smaller, making myself meek, making myself accept what is because it is what is and I'm going to make it okay. Not terrible qualities, but taken to an extreme, these can become 
problematic and I have found for me can disconnect me to what's really going on. If my attitude is always that of like, everything's okay, it's going to be fine, I'm going to be great. It's, I, I'm, there's, so, there's a lack of listening that takes place. So how do I balance listening to my body, listening to my needs, listening to my challenge, listening to my life and showing up in the way that I need to for the responsibilities that I have, for the loved ones that I want to be intimate with and want to know my truth and not just some polished version. It, it, it's a tough balance, but I guess what I'm finding for, for me is that that is the game. It's, it's having those two things as fully present as possible, being true to myself and showing up in the ways that I need to. How do I merge those two things as, as best as I can? That's kind of, I guess, where I am on my journey. That's so great. What a phenomenal interview to provoke all this thought. I can really <laughs> tell that you were provoked by this, and that's always a good thing. I was. I really was. I really was. When I think it's amazing that, like, I've never met this person. She and I never spoke, but for 37 seconds before what you just heard, we live in different places. We have different diseases that we're managing. We, But there's so much that I felt like I understood, and part of that's because she's a great advocate and a great communicator and a great storyteller and a reflective reflection a uh, person who's reflecting on life clearly but part of that too is like it's an extension of that blood brother thing you know it's just that shared life experience whatever to whatever degree it's a shared experience it is such a strong thread you know even if you've only got one thread like that in a connection to somebody who lives on the other side of the world, it is such a strong thread. So I'm glad she came on. I encourage people to go listen to her show. Again, it's also predominantly in English, so don't be uh, uh, don't be dismayed thinking you won't be able to understand. It is actually predominantly in English, and it's great to get these insights of what is it like to live with a rare disease somewhere else in the world. I think it it gives us, it teaches us, and it also helps us to remember to appreciate the things that we do have. Not to be too corny. I enjoyed it. <laughs> and, and I hope we have her back. I'm sure, I think we will maybe when season three comes out, we'll have her on to talk about what's going on in one in 20,000. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, a reminder, our next podcast here on Bloodstream will be next week live, Wednesday, June 16th, 7 p.m. Eastern, released as a podcast on Friday the 18th. And we will hear from the creators of yet another Rare Disease podcast. We can't wait to introduce you guys to Sean and Kyle from the Two Disabled Dudes podcast. They are fantastic. I've been lucky enough to see them in person. They actually moderated a session at the Global Genes Conference that I was at back in the day Braggart. when we could go to conferences. Braggart. They are so great. So I can't wait to introduce you to them. <laughs> and we have a Let's Talk Mental Health segment by our very own Joshua Sterling Bragg. And we have... Dun, 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 dun. Uh, we have a phenomenal guest more? as a part of that segment. Um, an HTC, an actual hemophilia treatment center psychologist, is going to join us from Colorado. Emily Weed is going to join us. Uh, so it's going to be great. We can introduce her to you guys as well. All coming up live Wednesday, June 16th, audio Friday, June 18th. And with that, that is all for this episode. Thanks, as always, to our presenting sponsor, Takeda, bleedingdisorders.com, for wherever on your journey you may be. Thank you to producer Greg, Josh, the Bloodstream team. Thank you, listeners. And check out the program notes in your podcast player or on bloodstreammedia.com on the episode page where you'll find links and information related to the stories and segments featured on this episode. 
have a bleeding disorders or health topic you'd like us to hear discuss? Is there an expert or a guest that you're dying to hear from? Want to inquire about casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcast or Believe Limited film? Hey, email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with Bloodstream Media on social media. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or you can follow myself and Patrick on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Okay, you can do the LinkedIn thing. I will see your message in three weeks. Patrick will see it right away. I'll text her every day. Make sure she's checking them out. Listeners, I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody.